Hello, welcome to the Trustworthy AI podcast from Truera. In this series, we speak to leading AI practitioners to demystify the concept of trustworthy AI, focusing initially on financial services. We uncover the real extent of AI adoption in the industry today, the importance of building trust to ensure impact at scale, and practical ways of getting there. I have two fantastic guests with me today, Brad Carr and Natalia Bailey, joining me from the Institute of International Finance, or the IIF, in Washington, D.C. The IIF is the global association of the financial industry with more than 450 members from 70-plus countries. Its mission is to support the financial industry in the prudent management of risks, to develop sound industry practices, and to advocate for appropriate regulatory, financial, and economic policies. Brad is Managing Director for Digital Finance at the IIF and has led the IIF's work across a range of data and digital topics. Before joining the IIF in 2014, Brad spent over a decade in National Australia Bank. Natalia is a policy advisor in the same team and has played multiple roles at the IIF over more than a decade. Natalia is also the driving force behind a lot of the IIF's work around AI governance and data ethics, among other things. In this session, we'll learn more about some of the most systematic research conducted into the adoption and governance of AI in the industry over the last three years. We'll talk about the IIF's Data Ethics Charter, which it co-created with several financial institutions worldwide, and we'll explore why banks in particular have an opportunity and perhaps a duty to make trust a key part of their customer proposition. Brandon Natalia, welcome to the podcast. Shamik, thank you. It's great to speak with you again and thanks for the invite. Likewise. Thank you, Shamik, for having us. Natalia, perhaps I can start with you. Since 2018, you've led multiple studies for the IIF in the area of AI adoption and governance in financial services. It's unfair to ask you to synthesize all of that into one question, but I'll go ahead anyway. First, how do you view the state of AI adoption in financial services today? Is it real or is it still largely in exploratory mode? Thank you, Shamik. I'll give a go at that. So as you know, the IIF has been serving its membership on the use of machine learning since 2017. We have done that through a series of surveys looking at the applications in credit risk and in anti-money laundering, and as you mentioned also, looking at the governance of machine learning models. So in general terms, we have seen a significant increase in the use of machine learning by our member firms. And to give your listeners an idea, between 2018 and 2019, the use of machine learning in production for credit risk modeling and management nearly doubled. And then our last survey that looked at that wider application of machine learning, but more specifically the governance around those models, and that we had 66 firms that participated in a very geographically diverse sample. There we saw that 68% of firms reported using machine learning in production, with I think a quarter of firms having active pilot projects in place. So yes, we are seeing that machine learning is increasingly being used in credit risk and compliance, in market risk assessment and in insurance underwriting, but also obviously in those more customer facing areas. If I think about it more specifically, and you looked at the application and the materiality of the use case, then I think there's two things that are important to keep in mind. The first one is that machine learning is not always being used for an entire machine learning model. It can, but for the most part, it is being used for certain credit risk functions. So it's being used specifically for a function in the model development process. It can be for data cleaning, for segmentation, for model development, for model validation. Some firms are using it for a specific credit risk functions 
some are using it for a full model use, and then there are some that are even using it for a full machine learning model that is using unstructured data. So that's one point. The second one is that generally the digital transformation agenda of the firm is what is driving adoption. So it's not really geography or size of the firm in terms of total assets. Without those two points in mind, the firms that report they're using machine learning sort of fall in two groups. Firms that understand that there are real benefits of using machine learning, but they just haven't built up the teams internally. They don't have enough experts to have a material level of adoption of machine learning. So I would put those in that exploratory stage where machine learning is being used, but not for material applications. And then there is a group of firms that have invested resources. And we see that that group has increased in size. But in within that group, we see that the level of sophistication of machine learning models and, and how they are being applied across customer segments has also significantly increased. And I'm going to shamelessly mention that the IAF is currently starting a new survey where we're going to be looking at the applications of machine learning, how that has evolved since we last survey our members. I think at this point, that was like a year and a half ago. And we are going to be looking at the application of machine learning in credit risk, in anti-money laundering, but also asking questions around the governance around those models. Thank you so much, Natalia. So what I heard from you is that actually adoption is both broad and, at least for a subset of the companies, quite deep as well. However, the important point was about how using machine learning does not necessarily mean having to use it for the entire model lifecycle, and that many are using it smartly for specific parts of the lifecycle rather than end-to-end automation. That's a great way to kick that conversation off. Now, looking at these same surveys, and particularly the last one, how do you see the way in which the firms are approaching the governance of AI? What are some of the key themes there? And has that also been evolving over time? This is a really important question. Um, So whenever we hear about machine learning, there's a lot of focus on techniques. But as you know, machine learning is really more of an art rather than a science. There are various techniques with different levels of sophistication and opacity. So for that reason, it's really crucial to focus on the governance around those models. I believe that is best done when machine learning models follow the same strict requirements that are placed in any other type of model. And that should be having a robust model development and implementation, having sound model validation process. So that's just ensuring that those models are performing the way they should um, and an effective framework of governance. There are many takeaways, as you can imagine, on our survey on machine learning governance. I'll mention three of them. The first one is that for most firms, the governance of machine learning models was embedded in their firm's model risk management framework. So what our survey was showing was that 36% of firms apply their existing model risk management framework. They consider the framework to be applicable to all types of model for their model lifecycle purpose, including machine learning models. The interesting thing there was that we were seeing several firms that were moving towards having an enhancement to the existing framework, that they were adding specific machine learning considerations to it. And when we survey our members, 15% had already developed an enhancement, and there were 29% that were developing an enhancement to the framework. And what that meant was that they were expanding their independent model risk or model validation team skill sets to have capabilities to capture machine learning applications. The second key thing that came on our results was materiality. I mentioned it a little bit when I was answering your question about usage, but materiality 
is being used by firms as a key criterion to drive the extent of monitoring, validation, and governance. But typically, what we're seeing is that includes several dimensions, and most of these are financial impact, use case objective, the complexity of the methodology, who is being impacted. And I'll mention a third point, the sophistication of validation and what techniques are chosen to assess the robustness of machine learning models, they also vary. And of course, it varies depending on several factors. And that includes the use of the models, the complexity and materiality. Firms use various techniques, but the most common methods that were chosen to assess model robustness of machine learning models was in-sample, out-of-sample testing and data quality validation. And I know at least data quality validation was one of these things that in our previous survey had come up as one of the main things hindering the ability of firms to use machine learning. That's extremely helpful. Switching to you, Brad, as you step back from your and Natalia's reviews of AI and finance over the last three years, what do you see as the key barriers to adoption? Well, Shamik, right now, I think the number one issue is about trust and confidence. Confidence in the technology, and I think this is improving, but still getting there to some extent. The question that a lot of firms, I think, are asking internally is, is can I trust this algorithm? Or perhaps more importantly, can I explain it sufficiently that my customers will continue to trust me? And I think that's a, a really vital point that we need to put in the wider context of where firms are at in the way that they face into the digital economy. The banks and insurers are trying to find their space in an increasingly platformized world. And the way in which they compete and differentiate themselves from the likes of the tech firms, for instance, I think rests very heavily on the, the point about demonstrating, having customers trust in the way that you manage their data being able to demonstrate and being able to maintain that position. There was a great data point in the Bank of England Future of Finance report in 2019 where consumers had been asked, who do you most trust with your personal data? And 84% of people said their bank, the other 16 being scattered across tech firms and social media companies and telcos and the like. And that was reinforced this year with a, a BIS study, mainly based on American consumers, but clearly showed that consumers trust their bank or their financial institution more with their data than they trust the government, and in turn, more than they trust it with a tech company. So I think we need to be conscious that we're in this environment where that position of trust that banks and insurers have in the way that they handle and, and manage and protect customer data is an incredibly important asset, but it also comes with the consciousness that they need to preserve and protect that trust. And I think that very heavily influences the way that they view AI algorithms. And I think there, whilst that level of confidence in the technology is getting there, you know, there is still work to do in establishing that trust to a level that, that customers are going to be confident with. So I think that's one issue, or call it a partial barrier or a barrier that's in progress, but one that I think is still very much there to a significant extent at least, and, and that is very real. And maybe the other point I'd raise is about getting your data ready for AI. We probably hear this a little bit less now than we, we used to. It was a, a huge issue in our first survey a few years ago that Natalia alluded to where banks and insurers have some very substantial data sets, but historically scattered across all sorts of different silos. And bringing that into a single data lake from which you can then actually get the value and, and be able to run AI in a meaningful basis. Cloud is really helping with this. There is some really substantive progress being made as cloud implementations gather speed across the industry, across the world. Maybe that's why we don't hear about this quite so much as a barrier in the way that we did, let's say three years ago. But it's still an issue to some extent. It's just that there are some cloud solutions that are at hand and available and that there's some momentum across the industry now helping to address that barrier. But I'd probably still say that it's a barrier. It's still real. It's still there. 
So the difficulty of getting data together and in the right form to be able to use in machine learning models is one barrier, but one that you think is easing over time. And the other is the question of trust in the use of data and algorithms more broadly. That's a very insightful summary into the barriers. Touching on that second one around trust, we've talked in other versions of this podcast about how to build trust in AI and in algorithms. But As you were talking about it, I think you were not just referring to trust in how a machine learning model works. I think you were talking about trust in a broader context. Maybe you can throw a bit of light on that. I think some of your work goes beyond algorithmic trust. Could you speak a little bit more to that? Trust in the digital economy and trust in in particular in the way that the data is used, stored, transferred, protected, is a really growing and significant issue that's entering the public consciousness more and more. And it is an area in which firms can, if they can do that well, use that as a differentiator. It was striking to me at the the Risk Minds International Conference in December 2019, probably the biggest gathering of the year of CROs, chief risk officers from around the world. And climate, obviously, was probably the dominant issue and the number one risk that they were concerned about. But the number two they were concerned about was conduct risk associated with how they use data. So this is, I think, a real paramount front and centre issue now. And and how you are sufficiently transparent and convincing to your customers that you are using their data in a way that is commensurate with their expectations. There is, I think, a challenge of being able to establish that the AI algorithms you're using are are still consistent with that. There is ultimately a good story to tell with that, and I think the AI algorithms are incredibly important to the future direction of the industry, but I think we still have a bit of this challenge ahead of us of being able to demonstrate it in a way that customers are confident with, that customers will trust us with. That's the key issue I'm thinking of. And I think how you build that trust, it's important to be transparent. Now, I'm not saying that transparency is necessarily the the panacea, and I'm not trying to make that sound simpler than it actually is. The more transparency you can show in how you're using someone's data or the applications in which you're using this or how the outcomes for the customer are affected, the more you can do with that transparency the better it's going to stand you in your ability to use these technologies in a way that customers will be confident with. So that leads me to another related question, Natalia. You authored late last year, and I think some early this year, a piece of work around a data ethics charter on behalf of the association. What was the objective and why was that important for your members? As you know, the IF published its data ethics charter in June this year. And we had inputs and practical insights from chief data officers and other experts from within our membership around the world. We had two objectives there. The first one was to produce a set of principles for the ethical handling of customer data that go beyond compliance and to protect and handle individual customer data. And then the second objective there was to help customers better understand their role in the evolving landscape that we have of data in a more straightforward manner. It was actually a little bit hard to decide what to cover because there's so much in which data exists in an organization. But we ended up having five. The first one was responsible data management cycle because it was an understanding that establishing and building trust with customers by having proactive data strategies that are driven by ethics and embedding that into the data governance framework of the firm was crucial. The second one was data control, and that was having customers understand how data related to them is used, is shared, is moved around. So the underlying principle there was transparency. A third aspect was, not surprisingly, looking at the challenges around 
using ML and AI and algorithm decision-making systems. There was a strong focus there on preventing and diminishing unfair bias and establishing principles around fairness and accountability. We also had a focus on partnerships and third parties. And in that, all of the principles that I mentioned around responsible data management cycle, data control, the challenges that we see with AI and ML, the idea was that all of those principles that are applied internally are also should apply to third parties. And then finally, but also not least importantly, was the focus on skill awareness and knowledge sharing, on data literacy, on establishing principles that enhance digital awareness and literacy for customers, but also enhance data training and education for employees. I think this was a really special achievement that Natalia and the team here put together in this Data Ethics Charter. When the IF Board of Directors made this call, and as Natalia mentioned, and, and our Board of Directors are all CEOs or, or chairs of major firms, it was very exciting, but probably also a bit daunting when they made this call on us. But it's been really fantastic to see how chief data officers and their deputies from 27 firms, very diverse firms, very diverse range of business models around the world, came together in, in this piece of work. Very well-motivated leaders across the industry who were all very keen to contribute in this space. This exercise really was the IF at its best with these experts in the field uh, across the industry coming together with Natalia and working on this. So it's a piece that we're really proud of from what we've achieved, but I think it's also something that will have a meaningful impact on the industry, setting some of the benchmarks in how data is stored and used and protected. And maybe Brad picking up on that point, do you think in those interactions with the 27 chief data officers and, and other senior folks, do you think it moved at some point from being data trust is something we must do in order to use data and AI appropriately to, at some point, has it started moving into actually trust in data is a source of competitive advantage for established financial institutions or not yet? That sense of trusting data as a, a competitive advantage or as a differentiator is definitely a theme that's prominently talked about in the industry. And whether that's that we feel that we're already there or whether that's more seeing the opportunity. But I think we've got to be conscious that we're in an environment where customers' expectations have dramatically risen particularly through the last 18 months through the pandemic, because people have had new experiences and been exposed to new tools in other walks of life, in the way in which we stream entertainment, the way that we use online shopping and homeschooling, the communication tools we're using at work now. With all of these experiences, the bar has risen in customer experiences and financial institutions know that they need to keep pace with that. And that demands a couple of things. One is your point that it could be a competitive differentiator from other firms providing these services that maybe don't have such a, a strong reputation or a strong position in how they use data. But also that to do all of those things, you're gonna to need to have cloud, you're going to need to have AI and advanced analytics. These are the only ways that you're gonna be able to provide the personalization and the immediacy at scale in a way that customers are, are increasingly expecting. Those things are the prerequisites just to be able to get in the game now. So being able to have great clarity and, and hopefully transparency about how you use data as the enabler for those things and how you do that well, I'd like to think it's a, a really key element in the industry that, that hopefully we've made some contribution to. Moving away from regulatory, for the last question, I have one for both of you. I'll come to you, Natalia, first. If you were to do a little bit of crystal gazing and, and look forward to the next five years, what applications of AI and advanced analytics are you most excited about? I mean, that can be in finance or it can be outside. So for me, outside finance, and maybe it's because we had over a year and a half of COVID, it's the use of AI in healthcare. 
that has made me more aware of those applications I've been looking at and I'm thinking about in terms of better diagnostics and things like that. The second thing, and this is just maybe because I'm biased in a way, because this, this is what I've been looking at, is around ethical AI. And in finance, I'd like to see how AI can help with a smarter underwriting decisioning so that we can assess borrower's credit worthiness for those that have little or no credit history. So and then with that, it's, it's a little bit of the use of alternative data. Excellent. We can't directly help with the healthcare bit, but I can tell you, Natalia, I'm certainly working on the second and the third one. So hopefully you'll see more progress there. Brad, on to you for the last word. Shamik, I think as a broad observation across all of financial innovation, the excitement in the next five years might be a bit less about a particular new innovation and more about humans learning to use it. And I think of a lot about a great comment that Harvard professor Megan Green made in 2019 about how historically every new innovation has always taken 25 years to show up in productivity data. And that was certainly the case with the PC because it takes a long time for humans to learn how to use something and, and to really use it well and use it efficiently. And I really think that the last year and a half through the pandemic has probably broken a bit of that. I, I think Megan Green's absolutely right in the, the pre-pandemic era in, in what she described. But I do wonder if this forced adoption we've had of different technologies has done a bit to break that nexus or to upskill humans. And so I think when we come to AI and, and you know what I described as that challenge of how we get people to be more trusting and more confident in the technology, we've needed humans to learn the technology better. And I think maybe now we're in a position where, where more of that can happen faster. So that's, I think, a, a really key piece I'm excited about. If I had to pinpoint a particular application area, I'm probably most excited about what we can do in using this to combat financial crime, to combat crime more effectively. As an example, you know, Scotiabank have done some magnificent things recently using AI to detect and break up human trafficking rings, which is a horrific area of crime. And so the more that we can see the use of AI to do more and to do better and for us to be better and smarter against those sort of terrible criminal enterprises, I think there's a lot of exciting opportunity. I think it's been constrained a bit in the past by some of the data localization policy barriers where a lot of the major multinational firms have been restricted even in sharing their own data with themselves across borders. And that's compromised, I think, a bit of, of what we've been able to do so far using AI in this space. But I think there is some momentum in that. And I think if we can get some of those policy breakthroughs that helps to, to share the underlying data so that we can be better and smarter in training, having the data in training those sort of algorithms, I think we can do a lot of good and get it some real headway against what really are some, some pretty horrific crimes. Thank you, Brad. Your point about financial crime is well taken. I think that is an area where AI has made some strides, but there's a lot more that can be done. But I really like your first point as well. For a podcast that is explicitly about demystifying this entire area about use of AI and financial services and more broadly the question of trust, I think it is fitting that your main wish list for the next five years is for humans to learn how to use AI more properly. That's a really interesting way of putting it. Brad and Natalia, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast today. You've spoken about an entire range of things from real insights on the state of AI adoption in the industry to the barriers to adoption. We've talked a lot about trust and the importance of maintaining customer trust for the financial services industry. And we've done some interesting crystal gazing at where you see AI coming up and being effective in the next few years. Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thanks, Shamik. Thanks so much for hosting us. Thank you for hosting us. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this interesting. For more information, please swipe on the cover art. 
follow Truera on LinkedIn and Twitter, or visit our website for future podcasts in this series as we continue to look at different aspects of building trust in AI. Thank you.